This is Paul Schneiderman today on the 14th edition of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Today is our special guest. We have Mike, the gas man, Gassino. Mike, I'm going to give a little introduction of you to the listeners. This is my little preamble I frequently have before we get the interview going. Mm -hmm. Mike Gasno has been an institution, the Pacific Northwest sports landscape now, for over a quarter of a century. Mike has worked as a freelance writer, author, broadcaster, communications consultant, and Mike has been involved in many charitable efforts. Mike has always presented an articulate and form and often folksy perspective to sports, wow. writing, and broadcasting. Mike has accomplished Folks. a lot. Folksy, you got it, Mike, you're a little folksy. Mike has accomplished a lot in the sports media field. Many of you know that Mike was a longtime sports radio host at Seattle's KJR Radio from about 1991 to 2012. Mm -hmm. Mike has written a couple very good books. One is his 2013 book, Sounders FC, Authentic Masterpiece, about the launch of the Sounders MLS franchise. I believe the book came out in 2009. should be mandatory reading any sports marketing or sports business course. Mike also wrote the great book of Seattle Sports List, published in about 2009. Actually, I think the, the Sounders book came out in 2013. Right, that's right. You got My it. bad. But the, the great book of Sports List uh, that Mike wrote with uh, Steve Room and Art Teal came out in 29. Uh, Mike was also a consultant on a new book that came out about Steve Trafton called At the Edge. Today, we're going to learn a more about Mike's career, his thoughts on all sorts of sports subjects. We'll probably go outside of sports as well. Well, Mike, thank you for coming on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. This is great. Can I have a list of the 13 people who were more important and bigger and better stars than me that were on this show before I before you got around and go, well, let's call the old guy from KC if he's got anything going on this afternoon. Mike, Do you have time to make that list for me before we go any further? Because that would really, I think that would probably help everybody understand where I am in the perspective of things. Mike, we got to correct the record here. You had an invite earlier. We had a little behind-the-scenes cancellation. So I would put you higher on that list, yeah, Mike, if we had to quantify cancellation. They're like, who is this guy? Let's... Let's go ask somebody from one of the restaurants down the street. They'll have something interesting to say. Let's get this boob off the... Uh, I, I, how many people canceled the day before you called? I want an honest answer out of you. Mike, I told this you before the show started, you've been an A-team guest, all no, right? No, no, all no, right. I, I, come on. Wait, three, four, how many people canceled? I'm going to have to ask even tougher questions now, Mike. <laughs> Well, Mike, it's it's Does fun. Does this happen in your other job where people start badgering you and asking questions? I'm every day, you should see it. Every day, you you, you should you should see it sometimes. Every day in the, in the oh, God, legal field. Well, Mike, it's fun to have you on, yes. and I love the little um, switcheroo here. You know, years ago, you kindly invited me on to comment on some of the Sonic's legal relocation battle issues, and it's only uh, reciprocal to have you come on this show many years later. Well, it is. It's great to be here. You're very nice to, to call and, and to get me on. It's, it's fun to, to still be involved in these things. It's, uh, it's interesting to think about the Sonics. Did, did, it, I haven't been paying attention. Is that solved yet? Did we get an arena? Do we have the team back? Is that... Everything's fixed, right? I'm, I'm assuming everything's fixed by now. You sound like Rip Van Winkle right now. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. It's, uh, I, I, I felt a lot of emotion different emotions when the Sonics left town. And I knew when they were sold to Clay Bennett they were leaving. I, a lot of people, I, I irritated a lot of people in the market because the day that happened, I said, well, they're gone. And, and I said, it sounds like a bad joke. Seven guys from Oklahoma buy a team. Where are they going to put it? Their, their families, their money, everything they have is in Oklahoma. That's where they're going. It was, it was you know, this, this malarkey that he was going to get a building done. That was just never going to happen. But we blew it. We had the team. We needed to make sure that didn't happen. When they left, the day they announced they were leaving, I remember thinking, you know, it's going to be three or four years and we'll get a team back. Never did I think it would be a decade. Now it's going to be more than a decade. It, it's stunning to me to think 
that we are now, we had the Sonics for 40 years, we've now gone 10 years without them. It's, it blows me away to think about in that terms. Pretty amazing. I remember, Mike, that you very clearly stated the day in 2006 that Schultz sold the team to Clay Bennett's group. You were on record right away thinking the team was gone. Yeah, yeah, Graz and I, uh, Dave Graz, my old partner, we both were like, look, th- this guy, I mean, look, and it's so easy to make fun of Clay Bennett, but I mean, when he'd come up here and go, I want to work in the Pacific Rim, and with that Oklahoma, that's like, he, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He does not want to work in the Pacific Rim. He wants to move the team back to his home. I mean, I don't blame him. I put him, he's easy to make fun of, but I put him way down the list on, on, on the old blame pie. I mean, he bought something that was for sale. And then he legally maneuvered his way out of the lease. He didn't break any laws. He legally maneuvered his way out of the lease. We can be mad at him for lying, but I mean, look. You say, oh, he lied to us. If I say to you, meet me on 520 at 3 a.m. this morning, and I'm going to give you a million dollars. And you get there, and I'm nowhere to be found. Did I lie to you, or are you just a dope? You know, it's like, come on, I'm not giving you... Yeah, he wasn't as truthful, but you kind of had to have your eyes open to what was going on, I think, a little bit. Some felt Schultz had a level of willful blindness in the whole thing. I just think he wanted out. He had 52 partners. His pockets were not deep enough to handle it. Uh, He was not... A big failure in this, and I put myself in on this, we all were blinded because Howard just seemed like the perfect guy to come in, but we all in the media should have asked a much harder question right at the start of all of it, which is, why do you have... 54 partners, or however many partners he has. That just, this isn't the Packers. This isn't 1930. The community can't own the team. It's a whole different world now, the way things work. And we in the media let the city down a little bit in that by not really kind of holding everybody's feet to the fire going, how come, what do you mean there's all these co Because what happened, obviously, was enough of his co-partners, who amazingly enough never get any heat. He's, he's taken all the heat for all of them. I'll give him credit. But enough of his co-partners obviously said, hey, you know what? We're, we we don't see a way to make money out. Here's a way out. We can be whole again. They actually made a little money on the sale, and they all kind of panicked. And they didn't. You know, I don't think any of them thought it was going to be as bad as it was and, and embarrassing as it was. Paul Schneider on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with Mike Gastineau. Mike, uh, we, the Sonics issue is coming up right now. At the beginning of our conversation today, and I want to ask you a question about the whole Key Arena versus Soto debate. Mm-hmm. Okay, many believe Hanson has the better location, Soto. Many are upset he didn't get the street vacation in 2016. Hanson's willing to make it all private. So there's a pretty strong opinion among many sports fans in Seattle that Hanson has not been treated fairly by the city. However. Although the key arena plan is not perfect, the prospective ownership group does now have a formal um, expansion application commitment from the NHL. Although, Mike, this whole process has not been fair to Chris Hansen, a little Shakespearean side mm-hmm. there, all's fair in love mm-hmm. and war. Do you think it's time to roll with the key arena plan now? It sure looks like that's what the city wants to do. I'll believe something's happening when I see shovels turning dirt. We've been talking about this for a decade now. It's kind of embarrassing for a city that's this great with this many cool thinkers and this much growth and this much going on, to still be wringing our hands over what are we going to do. Right. I, I, there's a few things. Uh, I like the Soto location because it's not as somebody who now, when I lived in Seattle, I would have preferred Key Arena because I lived in Magnolia. It was easy to get to. Now I live up on Whidbey Island. Coming down here, being able to take transit in, whether it's a Sounder train or parking at the U and taking the, the light rail, in, you, you know, that, that – 
these people that want to talk about mass transit at Key Arena is better are out of their minds. They're people who never take mass transit. I take it a lot now coming in and out of the city. And I'm telling you, the Sodo area is the place to put it. That being said, there's a few things I've never understood. I don't understand why the only arena that can be built in the entire history of the world has to have a street closed to do it. Really, we can't do anything more. Can we build it? You know, they built an arena in Indianapolis 40 years ago where they built two six-story parking garages and put the arena on top of it. Is there nothing? We have to close the street to get the arena built. I, I, I guess I just don't get that with all the land he's got down there. Why can't we tweak it a little bit and get that done? That being said, I, I think, and I love what Chris has done, and the way he came back into town and, and invigorated Sonic fans, and he's, 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 I think he's done a great, great job with a lot of that. Um, but I think the idea of saying, I'm ready to do it as soon as we get a team, it's a chicken and egg thing. At some point, you got to say, look, let's do it. Let's get it done. If he's got the private money, let's go, man. Let's make the payments. Let's get the thing done. You won't close the street. All right, let's put it in a different area. Let's get it. And, and they just haven't been able to do it. You know, I, I, I ran in uh, to Steve Ballmer about a year ago, maybe, and, and we talked a little bit about it. And, and, you know, he has a few bucks, doesn't he, Mike? He's got a few bucks. And, I, you know, I, 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 said, I said, did you ever think about just your legacy being the arena guy? And he goes, you know, I'd love to see an arena get done here, but I wanted to own a team. I think it really deflated everyone when Steve backed up. And look, That's a good point. I don't, I don't begrudge him. He wanted to own a team. He's like, at the time, he's like, I'm 60 years old. I don't have a lot of years left. I want to own an NBA team. And he certainly had worked hard. He put himself in a position to do it. So why not let him go do it? So he went and bought the Clippers. But if his mindset had been, you know what I want? I want to build Balmer Arena in Seattle. And I want uh, my deal is going to be I'll pay for it, but I want my name on it forever and ever and ever. And that's my legacy. But, you know, is it cooler to own a building or own a team? You know, what's more fun? And so if, if Balmer had stayed in, I think that would have been a, a plus. I think when he left, that put up some red flags. It's all frustrating. Like I said, the biggest frustration in all this, and I veered way off your question, the biggest frustration is that we're still talking about it. And I'm to the point now where I'm like, look, you guys want to do Key Arena? Let's go. Let's rock. Let's do Key Arena. And I, mean, I, I, I think getting in and out of that area will be a nightmare based on traffic now, based on how the neighborhood has changed in the 10 years since the Sonics left, based on the amount of surface parking that's not available in that area anymore, based on the way they fixed the Mercer mess, which now should be called the Mercer Messier. You know, you, you cannot get anywhere on that street. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they maybe the, the they're going to have drones flying everybody in like they've talked about. I mean, hell, I, I could be wrong. I just want to get something done so we can get back to having a world class winter sport here. And if it's the NHL, I'm, I'm also you know I put something on Twitter recently, and I think people took it a little bit the wrong way. They go, like, oh, I didn't know you were anti NBA. I'm not anti NBA. I watch the NBA a lot. I'd love for the NBA to come back. I'm tired of waiting for the NBA to say something nice about us. The NHL has said, hey, we we want you. Hey, here's an expansion application. Hey, put together a ticket drive. Oh, boy, are we excited. Well, you know what? To hell with the NBA. If you don't want to even give us a wink once, a, you know, you're sitting... The NHL a, wants to go on a date with Seattle. The hey, NBA doesn't surely want to. You're sitting in the bar, and the one gal will not even give you the time of day, and the other guy's like, hey, how's it going? Hey, well, right. Okay, well, I'll right. talk to you for a while and see how things go. I, I That that was the, the root of a tweet I put out a while ago about, look, to, to hell with the NBA. I'm, I, I am tired of waiting for them to say, we love Seattle, and you guys get your building stuff straight, and we're going to come back. 
And I don't know why that's so hard for them to say, except that they'd have to admit that leaving was a mistake in the first place. I think everybody involved in the NBA thinks it was a mistake. It's a mistake Seattle is culpable in. We did some things that boxed ourselves into a corner. But 10 years later, no one from the NBA has ever said that, has ever said, yeah, we want to go. You know, the NHL, meanwhile, is like, hey, exactly. woo, we're over right. here. We're ready. Right. Paul Schneiderman, host of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue area with Mike Gasno. Mike, we could talk about the, the NBA, NHL issues in Seattle for hours, yeah. but we're going to move on to some other subjects. Sure. Mike, you followed Edgar Martinez's career. Um, who? Edgar Martinez's career. Edgar Martinez. Maybe be a little more specific. Well, I'll ask the question. Uh, I, 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 you certainly know. Has anybody Edgar... thrown him off like this? Yeah. No, Has anybody yeah. thrown him off the roof? You threw me off for a second, but yeah. anyhow, Edgar Martinez did not get in the Hall of Fame this year. I look at his batting numbers. He seems to have a pretty clear and convincing case that he has great Hall of Fame numbers as a batter. Um, would you agree with that? And the second yeah. part of my question is, will Edgar get in next year? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, there's the, there's a few things you can look at. The trend is so good. I think I saw something where they said anybody who's ever gotten above 65% has gotten voted into the Hall, has been voted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, I, I think little by little people have started to look at the numbers you know, the fact that there's some younger voters in the baseball writers now that are willing to really crunch the numbers and the new numbers and go, my God, look at this guy's stats. I, I You know, I got here in 91. Edgar was still an everyday third baseman. This idea that he was Dr. Klankenstein out in the field, <laughs> I, I think is erroneous. He was not a great fielding third baseman. Wasn't bad, though. He wasn't terrible at all. And, and he put a lot of effort into it. And eventually, for a variety of reasons, they just morphed him into the DH. Paul, the DH has been around for 45 years. These old fogies who are like, well, I just don't recognize. It's a half a century now. You, you look, you can, you can make that. This is a huge leap I'm making, but that's part of the fun of being on radio is making a huge leap. You can make an argument to say, well, so you don't think DHs should be in the Hall of Fame because you don't recognize even though it's been in the game for almost 50 years. Yes. Did you feel the same way about black people? They weren't allowed in baseball. It's a slippery slope, isn't it? And, and, and look, I'm, I'm right. making a huge jump there. And I mean, it, but, but you know, you know what I mean? It's like, okay. what are you talking? And, and, you know, this idea, and, and it's going to be really funny if Edgar doesn't get in to watch these same old fogies just wet themselves in excitement over David Ortiz in a couple of years. You know, who who's, doesn't have as good a numbers as Edgar, played in the field less than Edgar, but played in Boston and therefore is going to go in. I think Edgar goes in next year. I think it's – if you want to say to me as a baseball writer, a, a voter, and you want to say, I don't think he's good enough, I respect that. If you want to say, I don't recognize the DH, I'm like, okay, well, so I Because he doesn't play in the field, so then I'm going to assume you've never voted for an American League starting pitcher because they never bat. That's good they, don't, they don't even play every day. They take four days off in between games. How much do they do? Relievers, at least, are out there every day. The DH is a recognized position. And, and I'm not in, opposed to – uh, AL starters getting in, but my point would be, well, that's that's absurd if you're going to say, well, I just don't recognize it. Well, who the hell are you? It's been it's in every league in baseball except one. There's one league that doesn't have the designated hitter, the National League. That's the only league professionally, and and yet there are guys that are getting by saying, well, I don't vote for him because I don't recognize the DH. I mean, there's two guys who didn't vote Junior into the Hall of Fame. You know, the baseball writers, old baseball writers are about as miserable. I don't say all of them. I know some of them that are good, but a lot of them are just the most miserable. They think they invented the game. They get a little mixed up as to their import level with the, with, with, in, in regard to what's going on. Sounds like some attorneys I know, Mike. You know, but, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's fun to sling arrows at it, but there's a lot of good old guys. That, right? And, and you know what's interesting to me? A lot of people have talked about this, Paul, that 
Well, they named the designated hitter award after him. How can he not be in? People have forgotten that the thinking back then, that night when Bud Selig was, for a brief moment, the most popular man in the history of Seattle, and I was in the stadium that night, it exploded when he said at the end of the 2004 season, when he was there for Edgar's last game, and said, from now, this day forward, the designated hitter of the year award will be known as the Edgar Martinez Award. I mean, it was a blowtorch to the crowd. People went nuts. And the thinking among baseball people at that point was, well, this is really a great thing they're doing because he's never going to get in the Hall of Fame. He just doesn't quite have the requisite numbers and the pop. And He's so close now. To, and so now, 14 years later, after he had his five-year wedding period in the nine years, look at how close. So, so a lot of thought has been changed, and I think next year is, is where you see it go over the edge. Mike, by the way, how did you get the broadcasting bug as a young person growing up in Indiana? You know, it, it was, it's funny. Um, I just was into radio as a kid. I was into two things. I was into rock music and I was into sports. I was into the Indiana Pacers. They were my love. I, I just loved the Pacers, loved listening to their games. Just got that these guys on the air talking about the Pacers were having the most fun. It sounded like they were always having a ball. They were flying to all these exotic locations like Denver and Louisville. And, <laughs> and, and, and you know, they were laughing and telling, oh, on the bus the other night, this guy said this, and it was funny. And I'm like, I, I just, that sounds awesome to me. And, you know, growing up in the Midwest was a big advantage because I, I, I have to say, you know, I, I, had, I had satellite TV before it was ever invented because in the summer I could get, 15 or 16 different uh, uh, broadcasts of Major League Baseball games. And I could get Pittsburgh, I get Cincinnati, I get St. Louis, I get both Chicago teams, Detroit, Cleveland, Minnesota, you know, Atlanta. You know, so you could sit there and just dot go up. And I had a little chart. I made a chart of where every station was located and all, everything I knew about the announcers. And I would say, oh, Atlanta. And I would sit there in my room. I didn't know what time. I was doing a talk show. Atlanta's playing Los Angeles tonight. Let's see what. And I'd dial down and I'd pull in. It was WSB in Atlanta. And I'd listen to them for a few minutes. And I just, it just fired my imagination and then when I'd get bored with sports I'd put on uh, uh, WNAP which was a great one of the early FM rocker you know playing long songs you know, type of stuff. I'm sure my parents were like oh god he's going <laughs> right around the bend on us but I, I just loved it you know and I, I just everybody in radio sounded like they were having a blast and clearly at that point I, I did and I still do love to talk and I thought, okay, that's what I want to do. And I knew I was seven or eight years old. I said, that's what I'm going to do. You've done a lot of writing in sports as well. Mike, you had a long career at KGR. And I got two questions for you. I could ask you for hours about sure. your whole career there. But what was the most challenging interview you ever did at KGR? What was the most inspiring interview you ever did? Boy, challenging. I've had one that I've gone to for a while. The challenging interviews were with people who didn't want to be interviewed. And I really would get irritated because I would say, you know, you're allowed to say no. No, I don't want to be interviewed. Instead, come on the air and give yes or no answers or be, you know. I, I remember Fuzzy Zeller one time. I was so excited to have him on. I'm an Indiana guy. He's an Indiana guy. And he, he was coming on talking about the Boeing Classic, and he just could not be less interested. At one point, he goes, you know, I'm interrupting happy hour for this. And I said, you know what? I'm going to let you get back to it. And I blew him out. I'm like, you know, I... I I, this this idea that because a guy is at a certain level, his time's more valuable than yours. Right, no, no, right. no. All of our time is valuable. I mean, you're here talking to me, Mike. I mean, which wow. Is, frankly, do are we done yet? Um, <laughs> right, exactly. You know, so so with, with, with Fuzzy, I would say, why didn't you just say when my producer called, I don't want to do it? And so, well, I committed to it. Well, okay, so you committed to it, then do it. Come on and just, you know, work with us a little bit. Do your best. Yeah, you know, I mean, you, you know... I understand certain guys would get on and interviewers might irritate them or, or keep asking something they don't want to. 
I was never that style of person. I was more than happy to say, we're going to have Fuzzy Zeller on. Let's talk about the Boeing Classic. Let's talk about the uh, uh, the Champions Tour. Uh, let's talk about your vodka. Let's talk about that you sponsor an IndyCar team. Let's talk about your, your friends with Bob Knight. All Fuzzy was cool tough. Things. He was really tough. And he just just didn't want to, you know, and I was like, all right, all right if, if that's how you're going to be, get back to happy hour. I don't want to interrupt your drinking. Paul Schneiderman, host of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with Mike Gaston. What was an inspiring interview you did at KJR? I'm, I'm, you know, I, I just think more of, of people. I mean, you, you know, there, there's just so many cool people I got to know. You know, having having a stretch of time where the coaches in this town were George Carl, Mike Holmgren, and Lou Pinella, that was awesome. I mean, three of the best interviews ever. All three very different guys. Great personalities. You, you know, Pinella likely to blow up at any second. Carl <laughs> just, just, and I mean, this, I mean this lovingly, George, crazy as a loon. You never knew where you were going with him. And, and, and Holmgren, kind of grandpa-ish, and how's right, it going, right, right. and how's your wife? And, and they were just so cool to talk to. So I don't know if I think of, of I mean, maybe if I thought about it more, I'd come up with something. But, um, you, you know, and I don't know if this is inspiring or if this is even the right word, but Dan Weldon, I talked to Dan Weldon a week before he died, the IndyCar driver. And when we were talking, he was getting ready to go out to Las Vegas. I was teasing him. He was in Los Angeles. I said, so you're going to just drive your car out to Vegas? You can probably get there in 30 minutes, you know and he was laughing, and he just—he was just—he was such a cool race car driver. He'd won the Indy 500 twice. He won the 2011 500, which is one of the most unbelievable finishes ever. And just talking to him, and, he's, and it's the only time I ever talked to him in my life. A very nice guy. And I remember I was on a golf course the next week, and Calabro, Kevin Calabro, texted me, said, we, "We've lost the defending champ." And I—I and I, I knew exactly what he meant. I'm like, "Oh my it's god!" It's really a sad story. And, and, I, and I looked and saw that he had been in that terrible crash in Las Vegas. So. I mean, I think of things like that. I mean, you know, that, that's, a, that's a little sad. I got to know so many guys. I loved talking to Nate McMillan. Uh, I, lo- I like talking to Gary Pate. Gary Pate's been an interesting dude over the course of his career because as a player, he was a challenge. As a, as a former player, he's like Holmgren. He's like Grandpa. He's the nicest guy ever. How you doing? What's going on? How's everything? And, and those guys were always interesting. Sean Kemp was always an interesting guy to talk to. Those are the ones that inspired me. So, look, man, be, be interesting. Be be. You know, work Love with your stories, Mike. Work with me. Fun stories. Mike, you wrote a very interesting book, as I mentioned in the introduction with the Sounders. Um, I got a question for you, Mike. So no doubt that Adrian Hanauer, Gary Wright, and that whole group had a very sophisticated and successful launch to the Sounders for the 2009 expansion season. Do you think those guys, though, could have had the same result in another market? In other words, because Seattle is such a good soccer market, mm-hmm. was it inevitable the MLS launch was going to work regardless of the owners and promoters? I'll, I'll say that Atlanta borrowed a lot of what they did, and Atlanta's launch has been very similar to Seattle's. They've set attendance records. They've had great success. I think it could definitely. I think some of their ideas would definitely work in any sport in any town. The idea of empowering the fans, the idea of being available to the fans, the idea of listening to the fans. Um, your point is well taken. It was a perfect marriage here. Seattle was simmering on this huge soccer community. But again, you know what they did? They found that. They went out and found that soccer community. You know, they went out and did their research at the so-called soccer bars back in the, the days before Soccer was on TV as much as it is now. Now you can go home any night of the week and find soccer matches on several different networks. Not too long ago, you had to go to places like the Georgian Dragon in in in, uh, in Fremont, and, to find, and that's where they went. The, you know, Adrian and Todd Lywicki and Gary, they would go there and they'd talk to people and and get information, and and they they did such a great job of listing. It was a perfect kind of kind of marriage of several events that really really worked to the benefit of everybody. Mike, do you like the Seattle uh, World Cup bid talk? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's any question that if the World Cup comes to the Americas, it's got to be played, part of it at least, in Seattle. And I'd love to see us host the final. I don't know if that's even possible. They'll probably want to go to the Rose Bowl or someplace we can sell more seats. But Seattle definitely has to be in that. It's, you know, at, at some point, world soccer and, 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 and the U.S. men's, they've got to recognize, hey, this is a hotbed here, and there are others. Atlanta's been fantastic. Certainly Portland, the, the support down there is remarkable. There are other cities. This city needs to be involved in anything we do as a country, soccer-wise. The fans have earned it, and if you want the sport to grow, you want to show the atmosphere that can be created in this city. You think the MLS will get really big one day? It's good. In my opinion, the MLS has, has hit a plateau the last few years. Now, the good news is it's a nice high plateau as opposed to other soccer leagues that we've seen over the years that just, you know, they, they, they got to a certain point and then they just started kind of going back down. MLS is not going down. I think it's leveled off, and I'm not sure why. And, and, but, but, I mean, their TV numbers are a little flat. Their attendance is a little flat. But I think to grow from the plateau they're on now is a lot easier than, to, than, than the smaller level that certain things were at. I think the league is here to stay. I think they've got to find a way to somehow crank more money into salaries so you can get bigger-name guys, that kind of a thing. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I see. I'm very bullish on the growth of that sport and on the growth of that. Well, you know that you know that league real well, too. Mike, we only have a couple minutes left. I want to get a couple more questions in. Uh, Mike, you've interviewed very many interesting people, uh, including the late Dick Emberg and the late Keith Jackson. Mm -hmm. I saw your recent Facebook post yeah. that you met both gentlemen. Who were a couple of broadcasters that influenced you the most? Were those two of them? Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, d definitely they were guys that I listened to a lot as a kid. But I go back to my, my local days. There's a guy named Jerry Baker in Indianapolis who did the Pacer games, and he was just, in my mind, fantastic. He was so fun to listen to. There's a guy who was at Indiana doing play-by-play -play for the Hoosiers, before I went to school there, while I was at school there, and is still doing it. He's so good. He, his name's Don Fisher. And Don is, I, I think, as good as anybody I ever heard at the pacing and the timing and, the, and, the, and, and, and just being really, really good. And, and he ended up being, I, didn't, I never got to know Jerry Baker. I met him a couple times. But I, I, I got to know Don a little bit, and he's been a huge mentor to me. And I don't even know if he knows it. I sent him a letter when I was working small town radio and told him I'd heard one of his broadcasts one night, and he sent me a handwritten letter back that just meant the world to me. I was way off in the middle of nowhere trying to get my career going, and the fact that he'd take the time to write me a handwritten note. Isn't that great? It just meant the world. So, I mean, guys like that, I mean, certainly when I got here, Kevin was that way to me, Calabro. Dave Niehaus was a tremendous... Great guys. What those guys taught me was you can be a big talent and a big star... And a normal guy. Love it. And that was really important to me as, as I looked at it, was seeing that attitude. Mike, we're kind of winding down. i got about 30 seconds left. What does the future hold for Mike Gastineau? Uh, I, you know, I hope more of the same. I, you know, I left radio to try different things, and so far there's been no shortage of different things coming. I'm starting a new book project with an old friend of mine who was a football coach, and we're, we're going to do a kind of a cool thing on his life story. Um, I'm working with the USA Special Olympic Games. They're going to be here in July. I'm doing some content production for them. It's really been a fun and rewarding job. I'm working with a guy named Jake Caldwell who's got a deal to do an art display at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum for their 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues in 2020. Those things are fun. They're enriching and they're, they're neat things. It combines sports and sociology a little bit, which I like. 
So I, I think I think more of that. And hopefully lots of returns to the Paul Schneiderman Show. And fans, if you're listening at home, go to paulschneiderman.com right now. Some lucky fan wins $100,000 from Paul's bank account. But you have to go to the website and register right now. Oh, Mike, it's you're going to get me in trouble. $100,000 giveaway. Do a web search for it. It's there. And, 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 you'll, and if you don't see it, please call Paul. At one eight hundred Schneiderman, and ask him, "Where's my hundred thousand dollars?" Mike, it's been great to have you on. Just don't get me in more trouble. Hope you have back one day. Thank you, Paul.